Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to Xinhua Razi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly journal on labour, civil society, and rights. Today we're going to tackle one of the hottest topics there is head-on. It's something that academics traditionally don't like to talk about: Beijing's influence on academia. This was blown wide open in August when Cambridge University Press went public with Beijing's demands that they should censor certain articles from their academic journals inside China. There was an academic outcry, and CUP backed down, refusing to self-censor. Today, we're going to talk about some of the myriad ways that China is subtly and not so subtly exerting its influence on scholarship. As guests on our show, we have a quartet of academics working on China who will talk about their experience of censorship, surveillance, and other perils of working in China. But before we start, we're going to do something unusual and issue a call out. If you have an example of your own research being influenced. Either by censorship, a warning, or other subtler pressures, please share it with us. Either message us on Facebook or get in touch with either myself or Louisa. We're happy for people to talk on or off the record, since we think it's time these stories were shared more widely. Today we're talking to Glenn Tiffert, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Tim Cheek and Morgan Rocks from the University of British Columbia, and Dayton Lechner from the University of Melbourne. Their work is in completely different fields: law, intellectual history, and literature. But all have recently come up against instances of interference in academic research. Glenn, let's start with you, since you've just written a fabulous paper that empirically pins down instances of Chinese censorship of their own electronic archives. You've been doing research on China's legal development in the 50s and 60s, and when you started comparing the digital versions of the legal magazines you've been studying. With the paper copies, how much censorship did you find? That's right. I'm I'm a historian, but in, specifically a legal historian of 20th century China, and especially the Mao period. And when I was originally getting involved in this area, I made photocopies of the paper editions of journals that had been published in the PRC in the 1950s, the two major law journals that were active at the time. And I had those copies in my files. And last summer, I was going through my files, and I decided, well, these. In principle, these journals are now available on some of the Chinese equivalents of JSTOR or ProQuest digital article databases that our universities subscribe to, and so I thought there's no reason for these to be taking up space in my files, and I was ready to recycle them and put them in in the trash can.、Uh, but then I decided, based on experience, that rather than do that blindly, I should methodically check to make sure that every article was in fact available as a PDF download on one of these databases. And I discovered that there were some missing. And because I know this period very well, and I know the journals very well, the omission suggested to me a, a pattern,、uh, and that became worthy of investigation. I wanted to see what really was going on here. Was it a completely random occurrence, or was there some sort of logic behind why some articles were missing from the record and others had been included? And so I decided to study that empirically and try to arrive at some conclusions about what was happening behind the scenes, because none of this was obvious. It was all happening stealthily. There was no indication on the, on the article databases that they were in fact missing content. So I'm amazed that actually this was something that you kind of stumbled across by mistake. 
That's right. And I never, I never would have noticed it had I not been very well acquainted with the original paper sources at a time before these were available online. That was the only way that you could work with them. And fortunately, I did my PhD at an institution that had these. Most, in, even in the United States, don't, but it's an institution with a very large China collection. And so they happened to have them dating from the 50s and 60s, and I knew them very well. And I knew some things were missing because I knew the originals well enough that I could see that the the online edition was incomplete. Now, some of the ones that were missing weren't uh, what you call obscure journal articles. They were among some of the most cited and influential in the journal's histories. Um, what do these omissions tell us about China today? Well, it's very interesting because the period that I decided to study in particular was the anti-rightist period, the, the switch from the 100 Flowers campaign where the CCP uh, towards 1956 and early 1957 decided to solicit feedback from members of society and in particular intellectuals as to how it was doing, how it was governing the nation. And people were very cautious at first, but then they were enticed to air their opinions, frankly. Uh, and then those who did ended up being the subjects of persecution when the, pol when the political winds switched very abruptly in the middle of 1957. Uh, and the ideas they, they expressed and the leading exponents of those ideas were marched in front of the public and pilloried in the press and made public examples of. And they were persecuted very, very viciously by the party. Today, the party seems to be taking a very strong position that it wants to bury that history. Now, historically, it has been difficult to study this period in the PRC, but in the last 20 years, it's be some sort of leading uh, PRC historians have begun to poke into that period and tell some very interesting stories. It seems the window is now closing on that permissiveness. Uh, and one way that that is happening is by shutting down the discussion of this period, and, and in particular those articles, because they suggest that there was much greater diversity of opinion on some issues that today are legally very, very front and center in the debates about the future of the Chinese legal system. Uh, they want to shut down that discussion and homogenize the historical record so that it fits better with the narrative that the party today would like to project onto that period. And, and can you get a feel, looking through the archives, about when this sort of censorship started to happen? It must have happened in the last several years because these articles have not been available digitally um, longer than that. What I have not been able to determine if, is were they ever uploaded and then removed or were the omissions done at the original moment when, when the, these journals were included online? So tell us, I mean, what kind of percentage of journal articles are missing or how significant are these omissions? So I decided to focus on three years of these two journals, largely because I wanted to explore that flip in the political wind from the Hundred Flowers moment to the anti-rightist campaign. But in particular, it's the only period where these two journals overlap. So I could see what was happening in both of them at the same time. One was based in Beijing, the other was based in Shanghai. So there was a spatial component to the comparison as well. So within this three-year sample of the two leading journals, 11% uh, of the total page count has been censored. And if you count articles, it works out to 8.5% of all of the articles. And those are concentrated in several months, specifically when that shift in the political winds happens. It's the end of 1957 and very early 1958, where you get that abrupt shift from a diversity of ideas being expressed to the kind of vituperative backlash against those ideas. I mean, you say 11%, but as Graham said, some of these are kind of the top 
articles, aren't they? The, the kind of like the, right. the the most important articles in the journal. So in terms of significance, yeah. that eleven percent might kind of understate it. Is that right? That's absolutely right. This is eleven percent over the entire three-year run, but there are certain issues that are missing around fifty percent of their total page count. And if you look at the articles that are missing, they tend to be the lead articles from those issues. And so the way I the way I describe it is these issues are being decapitated. These are as as anybody who works in journalism or news or publishing knows, the articles you lead with tend to be the most important in a given issue. And the fact that the party now wishes to excise those from the record to pretend they never existed, I think is telling, because these are articles that the party led with in the 1950s that it was most proud of. And in a sense, that that indicates that there's a certain amount of regret about the positions the party took in the 1950s and, and a very conscious decision to bury that record. Well, it, it must be a very hard record to bury because, if, as you say, these are articles that the party led with. A lot of the other articles, possibly less cited, are going to be articles that feed off or refer to these articles. So, so you might have a strange situation where they're referring to an article that no longer exists. I think, yeah, there is some of that. There is some of that, absolutely. But they've been done a fairly good job of taking out the most controversial and most interesting articles from the period. And so what you get is this moment of sort of orthodox orthodoxy that exists through, you know, 1954 when the first journal was published through 56. And then they take out the complicated bits from 57, 50, um, 56, 57, and 8. And then you get back to sort of the orthodoxy again. So it's sort of a homogenization that occurs. And I think it's – I've gone through several versions of why this might be happening, and it's pure speculation. But I suspect that this simply is part of a larger effort to kind of uh, suppress the, the investigation of the skeletons in the party's closet. But to look at it another way, why is the anti-rightist movement suddenly a sensitive subject? I mean, this is something most of the people involved in it are either dead or dying. Um, how has it suddenly become so sensitive? Right. So this was a period where the party began to entertain a diversity of ideas about the direction of the legal system. Uh, in 1954, the first PRC constitution was enacted, and that opened up a period of discussion about how seriously the party was to take law and how institutionalized the legal system was 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 to become, and in particular, the relationship between law and party rule. And so there was a period of time where people grappled with these issues, even within the party, and there was a diversity of opinions expressed. And for a period of several months, ideas that had come out of the Republican period before the 49 revolution returned, and there were discussions of ideas about constitutionalism, about judicial independence, about perhaps the return of a discourse of the rule of law, uh, the extent to which defendants in criminal trials should have access to legal counsel, uh, the extent to which counter-revolution was even relevant anymore as a crime, and, uh, and, and questions about whether the presumption of innocence had a place within a socialist legal system. And these were debated vigorously for a short period of time in these journals, and then the conversation was shut down uh, when the anti-rightist campaign struck. Now, all of these issues and questions that I've just enumerated are relevant today and are have been discussed for a number of years in the PRC. And in the last several years in particular, the party is pushing hard against them uh, and, and narrowing the, the, the parameters of the debate about them. Um, I just want to go back to that moment when you started checking. I mean, what was it like for you? Were you surprised? Uh, based on experience, not terribly surprised. Um, on the other hand, uh, 
you know, my antennae went up and I thought, here's a very interesting project, something that I had been dying for a period of time to get involved with a kind of project that lent itself to the, the empirical research methods that I used in this article. And I thought, my gosh, something has fallen into my lap. Also, my goals were larger than that, too. And my goals in particular were about let's not just talk about China, the conversion of all of our publishing to digital formats and the dominance of, of, of the digital over paper. Libraries are now shifting to online resources as opposed to keeping collections of books. Uh, poses some real challenges about how we're going to manage information into the future, because the techniques that China is using to censor these journals are, are, could be used by anyone uh, in this digital age. And it raises some very deep questions about how we engineer our systems of knowledge preservation to guard against that. I must confess that I had a similar reaction when uh, China Quarterly uh, was requested and initially complied with removing 300 articles from its database. Um, I was very curious immediately to see which uh, articles had had been censored. How do you see that case? Does it have some parallels with what you've discovered? Yes, but I see it as a much more clumsy example of what I've discovered. Uh, People who have looked at the list of 315 articles that China Quarterly removed, uh, that list suggests a very kind of clumsy or crude keyword search that occurred. Uh, Some articles talking about controversial subjects, uh, but didn't have those subjects in their title remained in the accessible record. And then some fairly uncontroversial uh, articles but had the wrong keywords in their title seemed to have been censored. And so that suggested that there was a very crude kind of keyword list that that was used. Uh, In my example, um, again, because perhaps my sources were in Chinese and for that reason more accessible to Chinese censors, my example suggests that there was a much finer grain discriminating logic that was occurred uh, that occurred, and that somebody who was making the decisions knew these sources quite well and also was making decisions about where the political line was about them so they are those two examples are in the same universe but but what I found in in my journals and the censorship that I, I looked at it suggested that there was a much more knowledgeable set of people behind the decisions that were made it wasn't a clumsy kind of keyword search. But um, Glenn, you were looking at a couple of other journals, weren't you, as a kind of basis for comparison, and you found that that censorship was even worse, didn't you? I did. I did. And I I wanted to find out, well, is this is what I found limited only to these two journals in this particular period of time, for example, law journals from the 1956, 7 and 8 period, or was what I was finding indicative of a larger problem? And so I looked at a social science journal, one of the leading social science journals from that period, not a law journal, and I found extensive censorship there in the same period of time. And then I looked at a series of other journals as well, and and journals from the late 70s, and I, I was finding evidence of censorship almost everywhere I looked. Uh, from these two major databases. And these are the two databases that universities all over the world outside of China would subscribe to in order to get access to journals in Chinese. They are truly the Chinese equivalents of JSTOR. Right. Wasn't one of them something like 80% was censored? One of these journals began publication in 1954 and ran until 1966, uh, when the Cultural Revolution shut it down. And then it resumed publication uh, in 1978. This was the first uh, academic law journal published in post-Mao China. It resumed publication with a slightly different name. And there were seven issues published from 1978 through 1979, which was a very important period because this is the period where Deng Xiaoping is, is consolidating his power. Uh, and this is also the period that's leading up to the trial of the Gang of Four. 
And there was a tremendous diversity of ideas, again, on the table about how to reconstruct the Chinese legal system before orthodoxy congealed around that question. And these are the issues that are being censored. 87% of the page count from 1978 through 79 is missing from these online databases. Uh, and so you get a, a really the, the record of the reconstruction of the legal system and how they grappled with how to go about doing that has been excised. And I guess in the Cambridge University press case, there was some option to push back, but it, it would seem in, in this case where people or universities are buying up these databases, is there any way the universities can push back and say, hey, what you're selling us is uh, only 13% of the original database? But how can they even tell? Yeah, how do they even know? Right, and it, it, what it takes is having a, a good, consistent and complete paper record so that you can do this kind of research, which I was able to assemble uh, using the collections of a number of libraries. No institution in the United States has a complete set of these journals. Uh, so I had to assemble it from a number of institutions and then do uh, targeted acquisitions within China to make sure that I had every single page, every issue. Uh, and then I was able to determine on that basis what was missing. But ordinarily, it would not be obvious. Uh, these online databases certainly, uh, in some cases, they do tell you we are missing this issue or we are missing that issue. Uh, but again, you would not know why they're missing that issue or what you're missing. Universities are subscribing to these these two digital platforms, and each each one of them can cost tens of thousands of U.S. dollars a year uh, for a subscription. And so the question really becomes, uh, is it is it a university complaining to their vendor that they're getting an inferior product, or is it the university complaining to the vendor, but the vendor's hands are tied because it's a Chinese company that most operate consistent with Chinese law and whatever decisions are being made by Chinese government censors. And if the latter is the case, then the options for we abroad are much more limited because it's possible to lobby a Chinese firm to improve its coverage of a journal. But if the government is telling them that they cannot include those articles, it's much harder to entice the Chinese government to reverse itself. Uh, and so uh, these are questions that universities, libraries, and consortiums of universities need to discuss and perhaps arrive at some sort of collective position uh, to take vis-a-vis -vis these companies. Uh, and one other option is simply digitizing the record. Uh, one of the problems with these journals is they are still under copyright uh, in the United States, and it's American copyright law that limits what American scholars can do with these journals. Uh, so we can digitize them and sequester them until they fall out of copyright, where we will suddenly have access to the full record. Uh, but until that copyright expires, our hands are tied if we wanted to make these censored articles available to a wider public. When it comes to censorship of electronic archives, a group of scholars at the University of British Columbia also discovered that the sources they were using were changing and disappearing right before their eyes. Tim Cheek, an intellectual historian of China from the University of British Columbia, explained for us what they found. We encountered a troubling discrepancy in available versions of an essay by Yu Jian Rong that appeared in the PRC journal Zhanlui Yuguanli, or Strategy and Management, in 2009. Yu Rung is a well-known scholar in China and in China's public arena and an advocate for the rural poor. He is the director of the Social Issues Research Center at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing in their Rural Development Institute. We discovered that the text of Yu's essay we were using uh, was more complete than the formal text published in strategy and management. And so 
He wondered, what is going on? In particular, a sentence on the nature of grassroots political activities had been cut. So, why was this sentence cut? When and who cut it? We don't know. But our best guess is one word, minxiang. Mark McConaughey from our team concludes, the existence of multiple versions of the same article, some of which can no longer be accessed online, should alert readers to the web of formal and informal censorship that intellectuals in China navigate in their publishing efforts. Yu here is using a politically charged term, minxiang, or people's livelihood, one of Sun Yat-sen's famous three principles of the people. So this was a project that focused on translating Chinese intellectual writing. And I guess in the same way that you, Glenn, stumbled on this, they also discovered this censorship. And they found that not only was Eugene Rong's work apparently censored, but an entire website that they'd been using for their research had basically completely disappeared over time. Uh, Morgan Rocks from the University of British Columbia also told us how that happened and in stages, as it were. For this project, my Chinese partner and I collaborated on a survey article on Sinosphere left-wing responses to a rising China. In the article, my partner and I relied heavily on ongoing published debates on Potuwang, or the groundbreaking in English, a website full of excited discussions of issues important to left-wing intellectuals in the Sinosphere. And at the beginning of 2016, as we were double-checking citations um, from the website for the article, my partner found that Potuwang, which had a .cn domain, had been suspended. A Potuwang site on a WordPress with a .tw domain uploaded most of the old site's articles, but it soon stopped providing updates. Well, around June of that year, my partner pointed me to a Potuwang site that seemed to be hosted on servers outside China. But by September, my partner sent me a link from Potuwang's WeChat announcing its demise. They stated that all the old articles would be accessible at www.thegroundbreaking.com. And for the most part, with the sometimes occasional being caught in a loop, are. What this all seems to come down to is uh, party control of public discourse and, ironically enough, well, left-wing discourse. Left-wing debate uh, in the PRC is good as long as the party controls and guides it. Glenn, these examples seem to point to the fact that it's not just the anti-rightist movement, the 50s, 60s that are being censored, but we are seeing kind of whole periods of uh, debate that are just disappearing, in including uh, current debate. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, in the last several years, at the top of, of the Xi Jinping administration's agenda has been uh, reasserting control of party ideology and thought guidance on a whole range of issues and, um, and redefining the range of acceptable, acceptable debate, both on the right and the left. Everything must be led by the party and conform to signals that are being sent from, from above. In a sense, democratic centralism is reasserting itself. We asked Tim Cheek to take a longer view for us and put all this in historical perspective, and this is what he had to say. From a longer-term perspective, today's censorship is not new. 
It reminds me of the literary inquisition, or the Wenzhou Yu, of the Qianlong reign in the 18th century. That was also a prosperous age in China with a rich and powerful state. Yet the Qing state felt the need to control public speech and to edit the historical record through the Internet Archive of the Day, the Ziku Quan Shu, the complete library of the four treasuries. This library collected all the important books in China into an imperial collection and a massive publication, a printed library that was also censored and edited. Today's efforts to purify electronic archives in the PRC feel similar. This censorship also suggests that the enemies whose speech the authorities in Beijing fear today are not primarily Westerners, but rather China's own people. Distrust of the people is also a long-standing component of Chinese statecraft. Its effect has been massively extended by modern technology and the Leninist state. Would it be a bit of a cliche to go back to Qin Shi Huang and the burying of the scholars? Is this some kind of instinctive reaction on the part of the Chinese state to clamp down? I think these historical models uh, are on the minds of everyone, especially in China. Uh, and I think it's actually very useful to draw those parallels. Uh, and, and Professor Cheek is spot on, I think, to, to draw our attention to the fact that I think the operative irritants uh, as far as the Chinese government is concerned, are the Chinese people and Chinese scholars who are investigating these problematic questions. It is less the Western academic who is writing in a foreign language inaccessible to most Chinese. Rather, it is Chinese scholars, daring ones, some of the most interesting people who are exploring these difficult and controversial topics that are getting the brunt of the attention and, in fact, experiencing tremendous pressure in the PRC today. And it is their voices that are being filtered out. In addition to the Qing example, though, I would add something much more recent and, and very, very obviously on the mind of, of the CCP. And that is the example of glasnost and perestroika in the late Soviet Union, how from the party's position, nothing good came from that. Uh, simply, it undermined the legitimacy of the Soviet Communist Party, and ultimately to the point where the party lost its discipline and it lost its will to survive and, and collapsed. Uh, the CCP under Xi Jinping has drawn very, very powerful lessons from that example and does not want the same fate to, to, uh, to occur. Uh, to them. As uh, Professor Cheek mentioned, the Qianlong censorship happened at a time when China was experiencing great prosperity and there didn't seem to be any apparent threat to the regime. Uh, under Xi Jinping, you, you have a similar uh, kind of situation. And yet this chilling, which happened around 2008, um, to many people's minds, didn't have an obvious trigger. Do you have any thoughts about what might have triggered this renewed bout of censorship? I think you're absolutely right to point out that this, that this predates Xi Jinping. Uh, this was happening in the late Hu Jintao period, and I began noticing it uh, in the lead up to the Beijing Olympics, where the party and the state began trying to micromanage the narrative that China was projecting abroad. Uh, and with the sort of embrace of the China dream and the party's sense that it had begun to lose its way, uh, had become more corrupt, had become less disciplined, it has just been a snowball sort of rolling downhill with the sense of party discipline and ideological control growing with each passing year. Uh, I Personally, I noticed it and, and, and in those years attributed it to the Olympics. Uh, but I think it is much bigger than that. It's, it's a phenomenon that, that 
that one sees in a, in a broad range of issues. And I think it's essentially the party just simply deciding that it needs to reassert control of a society that got a little bit too pluralistic for its own tastes. Dan Lechner, a historian at the University of Melbourne, is researching the literature and politics of the same period. When he visited China earlier this year, he had a very unsettling experience in being monitored in his research. Dayton, could you tell us what happened to you in Shanghai? I was in Shanghai in February, uh, arrived early February, and uh, was the beginning of a five or six week tour of China uh, to interview survivors of the anti-riders campaign, uh, the Lao Yopai. And um, I arrived in Shanghai. I also had some research to do at, uh, at a university there. But I found the archives reasonably uh, closed. Some were available to me, some, some not. Some uh, files that I wanted to see that they had in their indexes had been, um, been removed. There was a lot of uh, fruitful research at that university, but I was also um, there to carry out interviews with uh, survivors. And so after uh, the time at the university, I started carrying out these interviews uh, and got caught up in a sort of maelstrom of interviews, about 18 people in about 10 days or so. Uh, and on the last day before I was due to leave the next day to Beijing, I was just finishing an interview and I got a call on my uh, on my phone uh, from the Shanghai police who told me that they had uh, noticed that I wasn't living where I said I was living on the um, on my uh, immigration form uh, and I needed to register my new hotel. And so uh, I already sort of felt a little bit strange about that. So I first went back to uh, my hotel and dropped off laptop and um, my recording gear and so on that I've been using for the interviews, and then went on to the local police station. When there, I handed over my passport at the front desk and said, I'm here, I need to register um, my hotel. And uh, they started copying my passport, and while that was happening, uh, another guy came in for, through the front door and said, are you Lechner, my last name? And I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, oh, it's not these guys who called you, it was me. Uh, come on, follow me. And so I got my passport back um, and then went around... Uh, we were led through the police station into a sort of back room kind of um, you know, Hong Kong police interrogation kind of thing. And uh, that began a sort of three-hour uh, interview. Three people came in who I suspect, they didn't confirm themselves as Guo and Bu, um, came in and, and began to interview me about uh, my research in, in Shanghai. So that's the internal security people. I mean, what kind of questions were they asking you? So first of all, they made it clear that they knew that I was interviewing these old writists. And uh, they mentioned a series of names of the people who I'd been interviewing. So they made it clear that they, they knew what I was doing there. And they wanted to know what the angle of my research was, uh, and why I'd strayed from the archives at, um, at the libraries and universities that were uh, more official. And then they wanted me to convince them, or I felt it was my job to convince them somehow that my focus was really on literature as it is, um, rather than the political uh, struggle of that time. Then they asked me to, um, in order to be released, they asked me to make uh, three promises to them. Um, one was that I wouldn't speak about what had happened in this Shanghai police station, uh, which I've broken many times since. Um, uh, the second was that I wouldn't relay any information passed on by these uh, old writers, um, uh, publish it or uh, relay it to the outside world in any way, and I'm breaking that as well. The third one is that I wouldn't duplicate any of the recordings that I'd made uh, and pass them on. And in the course of being interviewed by them, did you get the feeling that they were entirely au fait with the period that you were researching? It seems extraordinary to me that policemen would be asking you about uh, history from more than you know 50 years ago. 
Yeah, that was the amazing thing, and it was actually fantastic. I mean, better than a lot of conferences in the in the level of knowledge of the era, uh, and and we had quite a good conversation. Uh, in some ways, I mean, I was intimidated and scared, and I didn't know when I was getting out of the little room, but uh, it was also interesting and enjoyable in, in some sort of uh, abstract way. And I guess that's why I come to the conclusion that they were uh, internal security rather than not your average rather police. than the Shanghai Bobby. Yeah, the, I guess the other interesting thing that I've still sort of trying to come to terms with understanding is so we had the three-hour interview at the police station and then they wanted to go to my um, the place where I was staying and look at uh, any materials that I'd been handed and they ended up softening on that and so what we did is we then left the police station and we went I was staying in the French concession to a French restaurant nearby where I was staying and we had dinner they took me out to dinner they paid of course that's very nice yeah it wasn't very good French food, actually, I have to say. But um, during the dinner, there was a noted shift in tone in which they sort of wanted to become my my friend. I was I had, had the feeling of moving from the sort of stick to the carrot there. And in that conversation, they were keen to um, let me know why they had been so obvious in their handling of me or why they'd why they'd pulled me in in the first place. And they they've seemed particularly to want to convince me that it was natural that if you were, um, for instance, they said, if you if we were to come to New Zealand and start digging around in New Zealand 1950s history, then, of course, you would feel the same way. Your, your government would feel the same way. And Absolutely. There's, I, there's so much to dig up in 1950s <laughs> New Zealand history. Oh, there, actually, too. there is. Yeah, there, there, there really is, yeah. yeah. But, and, and the, yeah, the sort of weird thing was they then they particularly wanted to hear me talk about how I felt about the situation. And, of course, I didn't. Um, because I was afraid I was still at this French restaurant, but I was still cornered by three of them sitting around me in a booth. But what I would have said, of course, is that I think in doing this, you sort of radicalize people. And the story of the 1957 movement is a story of radicalizing a whole section of the population. And did you get a sense of what it was about the uh, anti-rightist era that they were concerned about? Or did they mention specific historical issues that they were, if you like, worried that you were going to cover? Uh, no, they just kept on stressing that it was uh, Ming Gun, it was sensitive. Mm. Um, I mean, I was extremely surprised. And I said to them that, you know, the people I was interviewing were the youngest was 78, the oldest was 97. His teeth fell out while we were holding the interview. I mean, that they seemed extremely, uh, they seemed harmless. Yes. You know, like many old people, they were they wanted to tell their story of their life, and they I think they enjoyed the attention. Um, and in some ways, I felt I was there partly to help them in that way. Um, but the Guanbu, the security service, I think had uh, still see this period as as sensitive and probably surrounding the conference in Hong Kong, making it. Even more so. So you said that afterwards when you went to Hong Kong, that conference also was subject to quite a lot of interference. Can you tell us a bit about that? To put it briefly, what happened was the conference was to be held on a Monday. Uh, The Friday beforehand, uh, there was a lunch at a dim sum restaurant for all the attendees, uh, and I was asked to go to that. I turned up, and I couldn't find the the guy that I knew, my contact, and I finally found a table full of people in their mid-80s to early 90s, so I thought it must be these guys. And I went over and they recognized me and I started to talk to them and we waited for the organizer to show up. Uh, and after about half an hour, a co-organizer came and uh, he had a message from the organizer who, which said, uh, over Wei Xin, which said, uh, I've been grabbed and you can report to the police. And so we then In had, Hong Kong? In Hong Kong. So we, we didn't know at that point. Then we had a long, over uh, quite good dim sum, like quite a long conference about what to do next. 
while we were discussing that, another message came through from this organizer um, saying, I'm okay, I just went across the border to see family, uh, so please don't worry. But that was viewed with uh, suspicion, really, uh, as to whether or not it was genuine, whether or not he was forced to make that statement and so on. It turned out that it was the case, that he had been grabbed. He had been grabbed as he was going across the border to see family, and he was released after 24 hours back to uh, back to Hong Kong. And did that affect the atmosphere or, if you like, the, the, <laughs> the, the overall tenor of the conference to some degree? Yeah, it did in, in really interesting ways, actually. I think, unfortunately, one of the sort of side effects of the pressure was that almost everybody's talk turned to the question of free speech in Hong Kong. I mean, had there been other pressure put on some of the participants not to come or was it only the conference organiser who, oh, no. who had trouble? All of them had uh, received... Uh, Pressure. So everybody who came from China had received um, uh, at least a telephone call and sometimes a visit from the um, Guanbu, from the security service, and um, uh, and had had threats uh, made about the security of their their employment um, for the younger ones, the sort of second generation uh, uh, writers who who attended the conference, or for the older ones that they might lose some of their. Um, uh, from some of their social security or retirement income, or um, but pressure was put from a variety of angles. And did many of them decide not to come? About half. Mm. But it, uh, about half couldn't come. Some of those would have decided not to come and some of those wouldn't have been allowed. So why, why was it that you um, haven't kept the three promises that you made? Are you worried about that impact yeah, that, that might have yeah. on you? <laughs> <laughs> uh I guess I am a little bit, but I think it's a kind of, um, it's important not to be bluffed. And I don't think that I don't think there's any particular leverage. It might be that I'm not welcome to go back to China, but um, that's a price I'm willing to pay. I think if we cover up this kind of incident, then um, we don't help any other scholars either in China or here uh, carry out research in China. If there's some more openness about that, if I had known before I was going, not necessarily exactly what was going to happen, but that there was a possibility, then I think I would have been better equipped to deal with it as it happened. That was Dayton Lechner from the University of Melbourne. Glenn, back to you. Does that kind of level of surveillance sound at all familiar to you? Yes, it is something that I have experienced. And I think uh, among older uh, scholars of China, it's something very familiar to them. It's something that an entire generation experienced before China had opened to Western scholars. When they studied China uh, or imperial history in Taiwan, they experienced that when the KMT was was uh, running a one-party government. Uh, that level of surveillance was, was found, I think, on both sides of, of the Taiwan Strait to some degree. There was a period of time in the late 1990s and the aughts where things became more liberal, and it was possible to imagine that that was no longer the case. But again, as, uh, as Graham pointed, uh, towards the end of the Hu Jintao period, the pressure returned. Uh, I have personally experienced some of that. I have, because I work on the 1950s, it's a, it's a controversial period. It's a period where there are many things the party would like to bury. And I think anybody who worked on PRC history uh, has experienced this to some degree. Uh, I was assigned, um, I was 
I was offered a research assistant at the institution that I was affiliated with in, in Beijing, and simply out of courtesy, I had to accept him. Uh, uh, it turned out that he was a full-time PSP officer whose job was to take copious notes on everything that I was interested in and to be absolutely... He was a policeman. He was. He was getting his master's degree in law, but his job was... Uh, in fact, to monitor me and take copious notes and to be the worst possible research assistant one could imagine. Uh, and, and he did that very well. One of the nice things, though, about talking to, to the survivors of this period is that they are in their 80s or 90s. Uh, in some cases, they uh, are fairly senior in the party and they're old retired cadres and they're simply they're not afraid anymore. They've, they've seen too much and been through too much and they are now elderly and the party can't do very much to them. It is younger people, though, who are extremely reticent and feel that pressure. Uh, absolutely. And there are academics that I know who five years ago in the PRC were felt much more comfortable speaking their minds than they do today. Uh, and they have pulled back from international conferences or are much more guarded about what they say and what they research. And that, that is the, the, the pressure has returned. Uh, and simply they say no uh, now. Uh, materials that were available to foreign scholars five or ten years ago have been withdrawn uh, and reclassified. So you, you simply can't look at things that you might have looked at before. So does this mean you're, you're likely to shut down some of your existing collaborations um, inside China? I have managed so far to retain my contacts, uh, but it is a, it's a question. Yes. Um, there are those who feel that people uh, that they collaborate with regularly are suddenly reticent about collaborating or, or, or choosing not to participate in projects that one would expect them to want to participate in, simply because I think they feel that now is not the time uh, to, um, to uh, attract attention. And there are some research institutes um, that have been shut down completely. And would you say overall a lot of the censorship that you're seeing fits into this campaign against historical nihilism? I absolutely would. Uh, in the last several years, the discussion of historical nihilism, which is basically anyone who challenges orthodox party narratives about the past, uh, has reached sort of a, a fever pitch as Chinese have driven investigations of uh, party heroes and party martyrs, events that perhaps occurred or didn't occur, which are memorialized in party history uh, and are now questioned by serious scholars. And so uh, and so the debate about historical nihilism is, I think, the, the giant cloud uh, over the horizon of historical scholarship in China. Uh, anyone who probes these narratives in any questioning way, who tries to look for evidence uh, is subject to a charge of violating party orthodoxy and being a historical nihilist. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. Um, not only might you be censored, but you might um, come under pressure from the authorities and ultimately lose your position or be arrested. So what does all this mean for the future of scholarship on China? Is it time for Western scholars to kind of move away from what they've been doing? I mean, is it necessary? Because it seems from what you're saying that to continue using kind of old methods is actually untenable. You know, you can't get research collaborations, the kind of work that you might do might be putting your research collaborators at risk. And, you know, if you're looking at any period of history nowadays, the sources that you're drawing upon are likely to be tainted. So how, how can academics research China in, the, in this environment? Well, to be honest, it breaks my heart because Chinese history should be told by Chinese. It, the stakes for them are much greater than they are for anyone outside of China. 
it's it it is up to them to tell their story. I love doing what I do, uh, and I try to do it as best as I can. And it's very useful to have foreign perspectives on Chinese history. But really, we need to, and we've profited so much in the last. 30 years since the opening of China, having conversations with our colleagues in China, trading perspectives, trading evidence, trading access to materials. We have access in the West to materials on Chinese history, Chinese materials that they don't have access to. Uh, for example, I recently spent some time at the Hoover Institution, which has the Chiang Kai-shek diaries, and Chinese scholars have been mining those to great advantage in recent years. So the possibility for fruitful collaborations has shrunk. Uh, they need to be telling their stories, and it's, it's, it's a shame that it's harder for them to do that now. Um, for foreigners, I think we should continue doing what we have been doing, and that is follow the evidence as best we can and make the best arguments that we possibly can. But I think we need to train our students and change our expectations about what the historical record looks like and how censorship is present partly through these the digital techniques that are now available to censors in a way that might not have been true before. Uh, for example, in the in the Huangdi example uh, of, of book burning from the imperial period or the Suku uh, Tuanshu example, uh, these were this was a one-off. Digital techniques have changed the game. Digital techniques make it possible for you to filter sources dynamically ad infinitum as party policy on a particular issue changes. Uh, and so it's a much more dynamic process. And we need to sort of train our students and change the way we approach the materials we work with uh, in order to compensate for that. Many thanks to our guests, Glenn Tiffett, Dayton Lechner, Timothy Cheek and Morgan Rocks. And once again, a reminder that if you have your own story of censorship, surveillance or any other type of interference, get in touch with us through our Facebook page, via email or on Twitter, where you find Louisa on at LimLouisa or myself at Graham K. Smith. That's Graham with an E. Do us a favour and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. This episode was recorded and edited in Horwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour with generous support from Xinhua Razi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danto. Bye for now.